0: will be a voice that you will recognize, whether you've heard it before or not. This is man, (laughs) that's because whether you've listened to him on NPR or come here to hear him, this is a man who listens to you. He listens to your hearts. He listens to your minds and your thoughts, and he's able to capture them in prose and write them down, in stories and novels and novellas that capture us as well. His voice is one of yours, and you're about to now honored and charmed to hear Mr. Alan choose. If it
1: weren't such a lovely thing you just said, Rick, I would think it might be libelous. <laughs>
0: Well, we all live in a scanner's world, so.
1: I've always thought, you know, fiction writers were, uh, well, if you go back to, uh, you know, Faulkner working at the Oxford Mississippi Post Office, remember, he used to open the mail and read the letters, and if there are part, you know, there's one little section in The Sound and the Fury where he's, it seems to me he actually transcribed a letter that, between this lecherous fellow and a woman in Memphis. Uh, So, You know, writers are eavesdroppers, story stealers, vampires of a sort, I think. Psychic Uh, vampires. Psychic vampires, yes. I mean, we've all had that experience. We we read something, we think, how the hell did that story writer or novelist know what was going on in my mind? Because I didn't know that that was, was going on until I just read this. Which is why, I guess, books like Ulysses in their time were so shocking because, uh, you know, everybody thought these things, but everybody pretended
0: that they didn't. And Alan, in your latest book, you capture a number of, of pretty shocking thoughts, and I think that uh, <laughs> you do a good job. And, and one of the things, this is a return to you to the novella form, and I Talk a little bit about deciding to write these as novellas. That they just—that's just how they speak to you. Yeah, I, I mean, I
1: could make a long disquisition on deciding to write them, but I didn't—I didn't decide nothing. <laughs> um, it, you know, after a while, if you, you know, if you read enough, and I guess if you write enough, you, you develop your sense of of proportion, and so you know when something is a story, and when it's going to be a novel. Um, the great thing about writing stories is that they're over. Uh, so whatever uh, pain and ardor it takes to write a story, it's over after. Uh, I was saying to Rick the other day, I always use the Cheever rule. I said, I once said to Cheever, how long does it take you to write a story? And he said, well, maybe three months. So I've always used that as a guide. You know, OK, I'll work on a story for three months. And then it's supposed to be something near finished. Um, but then you have to start it over again you start it over again you finish the story and then what are you going to do next Uh, whereas a novel um, takes can take years and uh, it gives you something to do you don't wake up one morning and say what am I going to do next you know you wake up you're going to wake up every morning for you know 300 days or 600 days or 900 days and you're going to have something to go to so um, I mean, I, I, I've said this before. Um, you, you'll know how much of an undergraduate you still are if you feel titillated when I say this. But you know, a, a short story is like a date or a one-night stand, and, and a novel is a marriage. And all of us here are mature enough to know the difference. Each has its own pleasures and responsibilities, or not, or lack of. So you have a. I mean, you. Have its own dangers. Yes, yeah. right. Yes, God help you if in day 600 of a novel you suddenly find yourself bored. <laughs> <laughs> and no matter how much they profess to be brilliant and immediately successful day after day after day, there isn't a novelist I know who doesn't have a bad marriage off in a closet somewhere, or perhaps even more than one manuscript that that came to nothing. And you're all, you know, you've all read enough and know enough to know that, you know, what they call a first novel usually is somebody's second or third novel. And even, even you know, Nobel Prize winners like José Saramago has just had his first novel published. In, I think it came out about three years ago in Portugal and it's just been translated. about to come out here. And, and you know, he's one of the prize winners of the world. So it takes a while. So those of us with two or three marriages, you know, we can sympathize with the novelist because there's a, you put in a lot of time. And I mean, the secret about writing a novel is a bad novel takes just as much time as a good one. <laughs> Think about that in terms of social relations and you realize that there's a, a, a truth beyond aesthetics in that. But coming back to the, to the formal question here, I mean, it's rare that you find uh, a short story that you say to yourself, well, I'd really like this to be a novel, because if it's any good, it, it, it reaches its own proper proportion. Uh, and there are very few story, uh, novels I can think of that began as stories. Some of you may have some, something in mind that I don't know, but something like Lord Jim began as a story. Uh, one of the great novels of all time, uh, Malcolm Lowry's Under the Volcano began as a short story. Uh, hard to believe if you know that novel that it but it did um, but then you if you if you read a novel that 's not really successful for you, you might s- think well why didn 't he just boil this down to its essence and make it a story more often again than not you 'll find that the you know the really good writers have a develop a sense of as i was saying a sense of proportion. So something comes to you and you really know that it's a story or this is going to be a novel. And you have to be very uh, buoyed up when it comes to you as a story. You think, ah, I can do this in two months, three months. If you say, oh, I have this notion of a novel, then you think, well, this is a major contract that I'm going to have to make with myself and uh, it better be good because you're going to spend, like the elephant, the, n- the novelist is slow to gestate, and it's going to take a, a, a quite a long time. Every day, that you're going to have to put into this, every every night uh, you go to sleep and you hope that the elves are working, you know, that, and that you get up the next morning and you are going to find that you have the the stuff to put on the page. Um. So in the case of these novellas, they they are neither nor. I mean, they're not stories. They're not novels. Um, what is a novella? Is it a short novel? Is it a long story? It's, I I I don't know the answer, but these uh, are pieces. Short novel. Short novel. You yeah. get yeah. Okay. Yeah. We could take a vote. It's I remember
0: condensed, <laughs> condensed. It's like condensed milk.
1: <laughs> you know, that word condensed. That's really interesting. Remember Reader's Digest condensed novels? Uh huh. What Five if,
0: of them in the book I, my What, if they, what them. if they gave
1: a milk And they condensed it yeah. It wouldn't be like real milk And a condensed novel What did they leave out um, but Every other need, word <laughs> So I, I don't know Why these particular uh, narrate, Narrations Or narratives Whatever you want to call them uh, came out at this length except it seemed appropriate that they do um, you know w- why does a painter work on a small canvas and, or sometimes go to a m- monumental canvas um, you just develop a sense of proportion um, It and it's not I mean maybe some musician or composer here can set me straight about this but I would think a a composer knows much more in, in mathematical terms w- the, length, w- the length of the piece that he or she is going to write um, there's more of a, a mathematical element to, to, uh, to music than to I would think to any of the other arts um. nobody's challenging that so I guess I'll figure that that's sort of true at least for the next moment Whereas um, the composer knows that a piece has four parts and can work within the confines of each of those. Aside from uh, Aristotle and the poetics, uh, who, which really teaches us about the art of the scene and the rhythm, the, the, the particular proportion of a narrative rhythm that makes a scene or makes a story or even ma- can make up a novel. Um, there's nothing, there's no rule there's no rule except what you can come up with after you've finished the piece and um, the thing about writing a story or a novel is that you know how to do that one when you've finished and the next one is as much a mystery as anything else ever was in your life. So um, mystery is the operative word here. I don't know why these particular uh, narratives came out to this length
0: except I hope it it seems appropriate to you when you read it. Why don't you uh, start and give us uh, a reading from Paradise or Eat Your Face, Mm, the most intriguing title that I've come across in a long damn time.
1: Well, uh, except for that guy in Miami, the meth freak who tried to eat somebody's face, which is a great advertisement for my uh, (laughs) title, but it has nothing to do with
0: it. A zombie apocalypse uh, precursor.
1: (laughs) This is a... Uh, a a story about a young woman very disturbed young woman who is a kind of journalist who goes to Bali on a tour and that imperative eat your face is something that a, a healer she meets up with says to her after working with her for a couple of minutes and recognizing a psychic trauma so deep that the only way she's going to get over it is to uh, go beyond Freud <laughs> and uh, devour the self that she is in order to digest herself and see what she excretes so that she can become another person. It's pretty disturbed. Um, so, th- this... The character
0: or you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm just the conduit.
0: Uh-huh.
1: I'm a perfectly calm, even-souled person. Robin, you you agree? I can testify. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this opens with uh, an immediate uh, opening of a travel piece that the main character, uh, Susie Wheelis, is is trying to write for a magazine. And so it opens with her title, A Paradise Like No Other by Susan Wheelis. The dark-haired, smooth-faced, young brown-skinned woman dressed in a yellow and orange sarong walked quietly along the brick pathway toward the porch of my hotel room, carrying a tray of what appeared to be baskets, each about the size of her hand. Birdsong filled the lavender sky, high-pitched, exotic warblings I couldn't identify, while close by roosters crowed a more familiar chorus. The sun had just come up on my first morning in bali. And that was as far as she got in her notes that morning in denpasar. She feared that her head might explode. She would have felt an awful lot better if she hadn't fooled around with the bartender from the singapore airport the night before. For that, maybe she could blame her editor who'd suggested stopping off either in hong kong or singapore to break up the long trip from san francisco. That's what she told the cute brown-cheeked bartender when he served up her first beer and inquired about her presence there. And why wouldn't he? Five foot eleven, beautiful reddish blonde hair, a weird wig that her hairdresser in the city had given her, good tits, great legs, lovely tan. Her nose was slightly irregular, she didn't like to remember why. Except for the nose and the color of her hair, she looked an awful lot like her mother. But this morning, waking up in the cool shadows of the beach hotel, she saw a puffy face with patches of discoloration, so that one cheek looked darker than the other, and her neck seemed to have added a crease along the line of her collarbone and her slightly over-large nose. Yes, all right, her father's nose. She remembered her mother looking so unprepared for the world, but then two things. One, her mother, a beautiful Mexican woman, never showed her face without having first put on her makeup. And two, her mother died of uterine cancer when Susie was only six. She remembered little of her except for bedtimes, and the woman told her stories about Mexico, and how before modern times, the gods told people how to live and what to do. Chacmool brought rain, or was it Tlaloc, or was it Huitzilopochtli? She couldn't remember much about this. In fact, amazed herself that she recalled these names, so all chocoblock in her memory. The heart is very precious to a Mexican woman, her mother said at bedtime one night, or so Susie recalled, or perhaps even misremembered. Because in the ancient days, the priests cut out the hearts of the sacrificed and offered them to heaven. Even the thought of that right now made Susie shudder, cutting out the heart. One more memory, much more gentle and more mysterious of her mother remained. She told Susie how as a child she had, while living for a while in the United States with her aunt, learned English by listening to radio broadcasts of a children's show in which there was a story about a kingdom beneath the sea called The Land of the Lost. The place where all the things you lost turned up. And the memory of a taste. She remembered that the memory. What was it? So at 35, she had no idea how she was doing in relation to her mother. Her father, a wealthy vagabond born Walensky, who later changed his name to Wheelis, had lived only into Susie's 20s. But some of his words stayed with her. Put a good face on things and they'll work out. Too bad he had helped to make her face so distinctive, that nose. But she didn't want to think about it.
0: So that's the opening of this uh, Bali tour. Um. Now I want to propose that in these three stories, and I think in much of your fiction, you do something that's really interesting to me. And I didn't kind of notice it till I read these stories. Mm-hmm. And uh, you turn character into plot, and you involve us so much in the character, just getting to know these people and you leave us so many like little hints as to what's to come and the tweaks in these people's psyche that the journey into the character itself is the plot. These getting As we get to know these people, that's the plot and that's what really pulls us into your your writing. And I think that's just such an interesting mm-hmm. vision of writing. And I think it's... Uh, I don't know anybody who does it in quite the way you do. And I don't think anybody... Uh, Does it quite as well as you do? Well, I appreciate that, Rick. Since you read even more than I do,
1: Um, I'm I'm thinking, you know, Heraclitus has characters, plot, plot is character, Um, but then, you know, his uh, successor Aristotle says plot takes, you know, trumps all. So there's some truth somewhere in between Heraclitus and 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 Aristotle. Um, isn't it odd? You think for all of the the work that people do in universities and literary criticism that there are about three great critics after Aristotle, <laughs> <laughs> two thousand years, whereas you know hundreds, if not thousands, of great writers um, says something about
0: well, the tec- critics. The technology for criticism is is still in the same primitive state as it was back in uh, Aristotle's day, whereas the technology for creating literature it was much advanced in the 20th century.
1: There's just something about—I mean, the great thing about prose, particularly prose fiction and, and poetry, is that it's made up of speech that we use, you know, like, you know, le bourgeois gentilhomme, we use prose, right? We speak in prose, <laughs> great recognition— so, so, know, yeah, I don't mean to beat up on American critics, but there hasn't, you know, there haven't been there hasn't been a good, decent American critic since, you know, Edmund Wilson or or, or uh, Edmund Wilson, and maybe <laughs> Alfred Kazin, and the rest are just, you know, uh, Updike was a kind of enlightened book reviewer, novelist, you know, which is a great thing to aspire to. I think that's terrific, but he was a great critic. Um, So I think of um, Freud, that offhand nasty remark that Freud made uh, about European society when it was really coming down around their ears was, every country gets the Jews it deserves. (laughs) Um, So, you know, you could say every country gets the critics it deserves, I suppose. The, The good news is that, you know, the American fiction, American poetry has just never been... I mean, I don't know if there are any geniuses around, but there are a lot of wonderful, wonderful writers. So I don't know if it's a golden age the way it was in the 19th century but it, or in the early 20th century, but it's at least a silver age. So, I mean, theres I, I read a lot and I'm always behind just one terrific book after another. Well, I don't have to read the crap. <laughs>
0: There's, there's so much great stuff out there. It's amazing how, how powerful literature is given the simple building blocks I mean, a- and how much more worth your valuable time reading is compared to any other form of entertainment, I think. It, you get so much out of it. You walk around with memories from a book for years and years and years the rest of your life. You it's forget really everything extra- else It's, it's, it's
1: extraordinary, isn't it? You know, I mean, there are characters you encounter in fiction whom you know Better and many of whom you love more than people in your own family.
0: Well, Susie Wheelis is. A
1: <laughs> I don't love Susie.
0: But you sure as hell know her. I mean, that's one of the things. God, help, God
1: help me if I knew her in the biblical sense. <laughs> I wouldn't be sitting here.
0: <laughs> uh, you incorporate some of your own uh, travel writing into this, and I think that's an interesting.
1: Yeah, I, well, I went. I went on a tour. A, Uh, a tour of Bali, which, do you know Judy Slottom and Surya Imati Surya who live in Capitola, they run Danu uh, Enterprises great tour of Bali if you're interested in going, really inexpensive and you get to know the heart of the country because uh, Surya is is a Balinese guy and uh, a mask carver and a dancer as well as a CPA always good to have that up your sleeve the cpa if you need it but and and judy uh Slotim is uh, the leading american expert on balinese masks which is how they met at a bar in bali oh you're a mask maker i'd like to write about masks and there it was i think that's about 30 years ago uh, and so used i went masks
0: in an <laughs> ominous manner in this uh story that's one of the things I like about this story is it's full of omens and and, uh, I would not call it foreshadowing I just feel like Mm -hmm. uh, the entire world that you create as we read this and perceive it is filled with hints of the numinous and of just the way we look at things and, and how those cracks to whatever is really out there and how we filter that. I think it's a really interesting uh vision mm-hmm. of the world makes
1: Just me think as you say that that um you know realism isn't complete until we begin to think about these things as we read a real a hyper realism really extends into our own consciousness as it changes and and responds to various elements in the world and it's you can use something uh, you know that you read as a an experiment in how you think and how your mind works, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's a great point. That, um, And I think that's... It's one big roar shock. <laughs>
1: Accent on the shock. Or maybe on the roar, I don't know.
0: Both. <laughs> there's quite a bit of both in this. Now, uh, there's a lot of sexuality throughout this, this uh, Heaven book. For Heaven for friend. friend. <laughs> I'm sure Freud would have a field day with this. And he was, uh, you know, when you're talking about Freud, I just think he's, as time goes by, he becomes more and more interesting to, mm-hmm. to me, just as a, a literary figure in the way that...
1: I live with a Jungian, so we have a complete marriage.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, talk about... Uh,
1: I mean, the wedding of Freud and Jung. Right?
0: <laughs> That's an alchem- the alchemical wedding, eh? Yeah.
1: I mean, maybe it would have happened if... if uh, Freud had been a little less straight-laced, and Jung had been a little older. (laughs) And they didn't have to use all these women as intermediaries in order to fuck. (laughs) Never occurred to me before. I I mean, it seems to be on the surface father and son, but... You know, when when the master learns from the apprentice and the apprentice rises to the level of the master, perhaps even to overtake him in certain aspects, they become equals. Hmm. Now picture that, <laughs> God Almighty, Freud in bed with Jung.
0: That sounds like something out of a David Cronenberg movie, a <laughs> right. recent one, as it were. <laughs> You're right. Yes, shocking affair. Uh, you know, one of the things I think these, uh, that these stories do is once they give us a character and put us in a situation, you do a great job of creating tension just in terms of getting us to the present, the characters present. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an interesting way to structure a story. Is that something that just, uh, that when you're writing these stories, do you um, kind of map them out in your mind or do you just like uh, follow the, the wave front in? Both. So you kind of know where you're going.
1: Well, no. I mean, I have a, I guess what you'd call a a horizon point. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that's really important to have. This it, it comes back to the question of length. I mean, you, if you don't have a horizon point, and by that I mean some sense of how it's going to end or some scene or some moment that you're writing toward, and you don't always have that in the first draft. I mean, you may... You know, every story is different, and you may know the end for of one story, you may know the beginning, or you may know the middle. I mean, But eventually, you you figure out the relation of the parts, and, and then you write toward that horizon point. And, and so it's a little bit like, you know, if you're walking from Kansas City to Denver, you have to know how much food and water to bring, right? If you just start out on a walk, and you end up in Denver. You're going you could be dead unless you know how to forage along the way. So, uh, so I ha- in this in this uh, one I knew that I was working toward that visit that she has with the shaman, um, and so I have to back up as far back as I can in order to get the right amount of build up toward that point. And, and, and that's a lot simpler with a story I mean with a novel uh, you know more about at least, I'm not saying you I, the way I work I know more about the material I have a sense of the material uh, I have a sense of the characters but I don't always know where they're going until, I mean that's why we write draft after draft after draft my my. Um, my dear late friend John Gardner once showed me the the manuscript of Mickelson's Ghost that novel of his which we should all read it's it's all about the terrors of Mormons Um, (laughs) our next president
0: speak not such terrifying words my friend (laughs) I'm
1: preparing for the worst you know the famous political scientist who says hope for the best expect the worst Uh, But this manuscript of Mickelson's Ghost, this was in the last place where John lived, and this is about a year before he died in that motorcycle accident. And he had the manuscript of Mickelson's Ghost. This was in a a little old farmhouse in in Susquehanna, Pennsylvania, on the edge of this great geographical name, the Endless Mountains, these little hills in Pennsylvania, but they call them the Endless Mountains. And he actually wrote a children's book called The Endless Mountains. Uh, When he was teaching at SUNY Binghamton, and he showed me the closet in this farmhouse, and it was floor to top of the, the, the first shelf, filled with the manuscript of this novel, draft after draft after draft. Um, so, you know, more often again than not. I mean, that's why novels can take so long, because you don't know where you're going. It's like starting out on a great journey. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what to pack. You don't know what kind of food to bring along you may not even know whom your companions will be (laughs) Um, but it's you know you're setting out for a a journey so um, you, you do have to keep this star on the horizon or if it's a short story maybe a little lamp set on the in the window of the house next door
0: why don't you read a bit from Care?
1: Okay. This is, um, did any of you know Victor Pereira? You knew Victor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So this is, uh, as you know, I mean, th- this I can honestly say is my sense of Victor in his last days. Uh wonderful wonderful uh, writer, uh, Jewish Guatemalan, uh, whose heart was in, well, I'm going to say in Israel, but his body was here. Sometimes his body was in Israel, his heart was here. Uh, a wonderful writer no, wrote a novel called Rites, R-I-T-E-S, which if you don't know it, I recommend to you. He was a Sephardic Jew um, who worked with uh, the Lacandon Indians in the south of Mexico, wrote a... Uh, a book, The Last Gods of Palenque, about his work with a resident anthropologist who was living with the Indians and um, with the Mayans. Um, In fact, I met some of the people from that tribe, oh, maybe 30 years ago. Uh, Garcia Marquez organized this. uh, He actually got the Mexican government to pay for it. He convinced the Mexican government to have this Congress of North American and Latin American artists and writers, and scientists, um, and it was held at the Anthropology Museum in Mexico City. And uh, Victor and I were invited. We went down together, and uh, I mean, it was, I got to meet Garcia Marquez in the Hotel Internacional, which years later came down in an earthquake, so you can't duplicate that meeting again. And he's, alas, very ill, as you know now. Um, so I got to meet him in the lobby, and we talked a little bit, and, and I ran up to my room and jumped on the bed as though I just, you just know, met the prom queen or something. <laughs>
2: it
1: was a wonderful feeling. Um, in any case, he organized this conference, and Victor had told uh, the anthropologist who worked with the, these late Mayan Indians, and they came up, some of them came up to the conference to sell uh, their artifacts, to the, to the visiting writers, so I still have this wonderful um, bow and quiver of arrows that they used for hunting uh, in their in their sort of rainforest lakes um, in southern Mexico. Still have it in my house, on my wall. Um, so Victor was an extraordinary man, extraordinary writer. Um, to my mind. Maybe the the best romantic I've ever met. Maybe the last romantic. And he he developed uh, you know heart trouble, and they gave him uh, medication that um, you know with blood thinner, and so he didn't like taking it because it disrupted his romances. Need I say more? And swimming in in Berkeley uh, one summer afternoon he had a terrible stroke in the lake and then he became um, aphasic and um, lived here in various care homes for about five years after that well he was in a coma for three weeks um, and then he came out of the coma when when I got to the hospital in Berkeley I knew his where he was staying because there were, there were six women lined up outside the door waiting to visit him. <laughs> and he was scarcely out of this coma. Uh, and one of them I knew because her name was Susie Brown, who had been a student of mine at Bennington, and Victor had come through Bennington to visit. and sh- She, you know, was sort of on, his girlfriend on and off for a decade after that. And there were all, anyway, half a dozen women outside the door. I knew that was Victor's room. I'll just read the opening. This is, it opens with his aph- aphas- aphasic consciousness. Okay. Above a moon, glimish alabacto, my sorrow always. Tread sat the river of light. Will you? I casn't know the best of dim. A woman was with him when it happened, not Moira, but that wasn't a surprise. There was usually a woman nearby, always, from his earliest memories of his mother on through his early loves, Indian girls, then mestizo women, and then when he crossed the border for school, the pale, freckled white girls who fluttered about him, moths to his bright light, and then students, always students. He married just once, and she was an Egyptian woman, darker than any of his cousins back in the rainforest, so this doesn't so this wasn't just one of those cliched things where the dark men met dark man went after the light women and the light women sought out the dark man it went deeper than that this woman who was there her name was shirl blickstein and told him about it later much later happened to be about a decade younger than he was which put her in her early 50s pale skin the faintest suggestion of some asian ancestry in the delicate shape of her eyes He had nothing against mature women. It was just that younger girls were the audience he usually had at the university. At readings, there was more of an age mix. And the curious thing was, the older women whom he knew, who saw him with the younger girls, never complained among themselves. There was just something about him. He himself could never explain because he scarcely ever thought about it. Something that drew them near. And it wasn't just the sex, because there'd been years and long, deep friendships when there hadn't been any sex at all. He knew no one except the other women would have believed that. His male friends were almost all jealous in a pally way, joshing, kidding sometimes, but always ready to nod and shake their heads. How did he do it? In baseball, his friend Paul Germain once joked, you get a hit one out of every three times at bat, and you're a champion. In baseball, Rafe, you'd have a 600 average, which is impossible. How the hell do you do it? Germain wanted to know. Rafe felt the heat of a deep smile bathing his face. If you want a woman's body, he said, you've got to court her soul. So that that's the opening of uh, care the second. Novella.
0: I thought uh, the advice to the loved one <laughs> I thought the, the portions written from his perception in, in his aphasia thing were particularly powerful and that uh, talk about Wright creating that prose style and that perception that seems somewhat uh, I guess, a means of disturbing your own mind. Yeah, you know, as I think about it, it was a, maybe it's like working a Ouija board. Interesting, yes. Um, I mean, there's a,
1: some spirit at work there in the aphasic stage of consciousness, a, a, a voice trying to get
0: out. Did you consult uh, books on neuroscience or just your, your, the contents of your own heart? Both. Well, who, which neuroscientist? I'm curious. Um, I don't remember now, Senator.
1: I have no recollection of their names. Uh, but the neuroscientists are—they don't—they don't know that much. Is there a neuroscientist here that I've insulted? I don't mean to. <laughs> I mean, it's just they—you know—the the neuroscientists are—they're they, in darker territory than the poets, I think
0: they're actually getting quite a bit of light on that stuff
1: well yeah I mean your brain they can light up your brain on a screen so if they tickle you and you laugh they see that they stimulate an organ and parts of your brain light up Um, but I don't know what that tells us what does that tell us that the poet can't or doesn't or hasn't yet told us I just uh, wonder about that
0: it has to do with, uh, the, you know, this idea that we're only using 10% of our brain, which is... I know, act- yeah, you know, I have
1: a lot of people in my family like that.
0: <laughs> well, the idea is that we're actually, the other 90% is just keeping us walking, and there's a lot of automatic stuff happening, that the, the little man we all see inside of us who's supposed to be driving us is, is actually uh, doing a lot less than we suppose him to do and that I think as a writer there's a lot more happening that you're completely unaware of there's a little
1: guy typing inside me my, <laughs> my one of my oldest friends in the world is Robert Pinsky the former poet laureate and when Robert was at the University of Chicago doing his PhD uh, he was writing a biography of a 19th century poet and um, when he, he wanted to get his PhD typed he went you know, and, Went to the paper and found a typing service, and he went, he arranged a, a time to drop his manuscript off. And the guy, I mean literally, he, he said the guy was a big, burly guy in t-shirt, drinking beer and smoking a cigar. And he looked the manuscript over, and <laughs> he said, "Yeah, I'll get this done for you in a week." He says, "You know, I could have written this for you." <laughs> I do it all the time (laughs) it's true I mean John Chardy, my old teacher the poet, John Chardy uh, worked his way through Harvard writing papers, senior essays Um, nobody in this room hired, no you're too young but um, but I I love that so there's this Beer-drinking, cigar-smoking guy in my head. <laughs> Type,
0: <laughs> who's typing, typing your books, right? Yes. Yeah. Now, he, that, that guy is really interested <laughs> in family. <laughs> and I think that's one of the things that we find in your books is that you use family and family connections to... You you whip up some plot out of that stuff. Pretty mm-hmm. pretty intense plot. It's in-
1: interesting. I never thought of it that way. Yeah, family.
0: Well, that there's... a. It's through all the stories in this book. It's it's a great. I, I guess
1: it's a great plot. Uh, you know, what the Greeks called mythos, mm-hmm. which was meant the story of the cosmos, and then after about a thousand years, the word kind of got reduced down to meaning story, myth as in myth. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, what's what's the Oedipus play? But a story about a. Family Gone Wrong, <laughs> <laughs> or the Karamazov family, or, or all of the Shakespeare dynasty plays, uh-huh. I guess. Yeah. So, f- I mean, family is, now that you mentioned it, family is what we have, whether we like it or not. Um, you know, Graham Greene says all a writer needs is a childhood. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean well, I, that's that's the third story in the book. That's the
1: third yeah, that's the third story, actually. Yeah, you're right. Great segue. I hadn't thought of that either. <laughs> you're probably thinking he doesn't think much, does he? You but I read but I don't yeah. when I'm working. I mean you know after having written these I can think about them. Malamud used to say, you know, I'm the writer when I'm writing these stories and novels, but when I finish and they're published, Malamud is just another reader. Mm. And you know anybody is welcome to an interpretation, um, if if the you know if the story or the novel gets to them. Why don't so, you
0: give us a taste of the third one? You know? All right, the
1: the third one is called the title is from uh, Blake's tiger poem, when the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, um, and I'll take a chance and tell you the silly reason. That That title came to me in the hopes that it won't make the whole what i 'm going to read you seem silly because what i 'm going to read you has nothing to do with this incident but you know at Squaw Valley, where I teach every other year uh it's it's a week you know with writers running workshops and their readings and but at the end of that there this there's this ridiculous e- end of workshop end of week evening called the Follies <coughs> and and the, the name is utterly appropriate where, you know, the serious writers who've been instructing people, anybody here who's been to Squaw Valley? No? Well, now I'm, I'm probably gonna make you want never to go because of the, the serious highfalutin writers all do very ridiculous things. Like Mark Childress, the novelist, does his Elvis imitation. And, um, my wife and I do movement and language performance together. And one of the things I I've developed over the years uh, you know, 20 some years at Squaw is um, hip hop Chaucer <laughs> hip hop Frost <laughs> hip hop Blake when the s- stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears you know that kind of thing <laughs> 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 whose woods these are I think I know his house is in the village the uh huh
0: <laughs> <laughs> so see what I mean okay so all I'm, you need is a drum machine and a collection and freshman uh, poetry omnibus and you're good to go now that I've
1: completely <laughs> disrespected myself
0: <laughs>
1: um, is there any part of me left um, anyway so but after
0: I, this third bo- novella no
1: <laughs> but you know after uh, you know beating out those meters from these poets you they stay with you, and this, I thought this is one of the most beautiful images I've ever encountered in any poem in the English language. In that tiger poem. When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears. It's an extraordinary, cosmic image. So the title seemed appropriate for this uh, story about, uh, or this novella about a. A writer named Paul Brunson, I've, I rarely write about writers. I mean, I've, I've written a novel called "The Light Possessed About a Painter." I've written a novel called, called "To Catch the Lightning" about Edward Curtis, the photographer of the American Indian. Um, you know, I, I don't want to write one-to-one writer to writer, but in this instance, I did, because it's not a novel, it's shorter than a novel. And it's about a writer with a um, disturbed sister. Um, And
0: as, well, I I don't know how much I want to give away, but. Not too much, just mm, give give us a a taste. All
1: right, here's the opening. At his age, and for as long as his career had lasted, for all the novels, essays, non-fiction books, and short stories he'd published, Paul Brunts, now in his 60s, had never written a single word about his sister, and for good reason. First of all, he'd never been one for cannibalizing his life to use in his work. He knew, he knew the romantic way of seeing things, that nothing separates the life from the work, had been productive for, productive for poets, especially ever since Byron first set out to seduce his first woman or take his adventurous hike around the environs of dangerous Greece. As a boy in a small beach town on the central California coast, Bruns cut his eye teeth on, on the road. He read The Old Man and the Sea. And when circumstances led to his spending time in a state training school, he read vigorously and widely. He read The Sound and the Fury. He read Dreiser. He read, God help him, Virginia Woolf, without ever knowing until late in his 20s when he read a biography of her, just how crazy she was. He also read a lot of science fiction, but no fantasy. He never developed a taste for fantasy. Brunt knew, as if instinctively, the fine line between life and art. For a while, he lived on the southern coast of Spain, drinking the awful fundador cognac that Hemingway reminded anyone who didn't ask would take its toll on you. He went to the bullfights and leaped to his feet to shout praise of a fine matador. In Paris, between his junior and senior years as a scholarship student at San Francisco State, he wrote. He wore a beret and when he returned to California, one of the most romantic states in the Union by his count, he lived in San Francisco as he thought writers lived, in a filthy rental surrounded by trash cans that held the aging wrappings of steaks he'd steal from the nearby supermarket. But when at long last he sat down to write, he used nothing from his own past. For better or for worse, it turned out, you learn these things as you practice your craft, that he was one of those writers who looked outward rather than in. That's how he saw it. Nothing out of his own life seemed interesting enough. And besides, he did not need to expose himself or anyone in the family when there was a world of material outside his own small world, a world of lives sprawled across the country and the globe, and a world of history going back down deep into the past all the way to the Neanderthal. So for his first novel, he plucked a pair of characters from history, some early American political radicals. His second novel took on the subject of some American painters, historical figures whom he disguised slightly for the sake of bending a plot. His third book centered on the rise of an American businessman who destroyed himself and his family even as he ascended to power. Brunts used a newspaper article that had caught his eye to serve as the colonel of that book. His short stories were mostly the stuff of invention, incidents he'd viewed out of the corner of his eye. His nonfiction, a book about the writing life, a book about American literature, had always come to him from the world around him, not from anything he knew from having grown up with it. No family matters. When he looked back, that seemed to have been his rule. Graham Greene, one of his favorite novelists, once said that all a writer really needs is a childhood. You'd heard that before. He stood opposed to that. He'd even given talks on why we should look outside ourselves for material, why we should write about the world at large, not about our sensitive sensibilities that reside within. He put his shoulder against the door behind which lurked all of those geniuses of whatever age who, as the late mailer once wrote, never got out of prep school or even lower grades. The writer who turns to adolescence for his material is bound never to mature, he wrote once in an essay for the Sewanee Review. Genius in youth, that's for linguistics theorists and mathematicians. Writers take time to grow. Another writer he knew always pointed out to his students that writers are the slowest of artists to mature because of their lack of experience when they first start out, their lack of experience in the world. Bruns was thinking of this fellow when he wrote that sentence in the Sewanee essay. Twenty years went by. What started out as an experiment became a vocation, and what he regarded as his outward-looking book sold up and down, and he won a few minor prizes and established himself at the Center for the Arts in a large coastal city to which he moved after his third marriage. Three marriages, but no children. His current wife was teetering on the edge of what people today called premenopause, so that if they had any time, it was fast running out. But, and here was one of those intimate details that you usually find in medical literature and self-help books only. Though they used no contraception when they made love, they never talked about what might issue from that decision. He just didn't want to think about it. He knew what he thought. He had his work, and that was enough.
0: Is that enough? That's enough.
1: Uh, and he has
0: a haunted sister. And I think this is one of the things that this character thinks um is he, this character enjoys science fiction he reads a lot of genre yeah. fiction and I, I know you do too and
1: yeah i mean i read so much science fiction i i mean it, it, i could almost lose my day job <laughs> <laughs> but i you know i loved it growing up and i still love it and and i wish i could do nothing but read at this stage anyway just read great science fiction but i can't
0: now but i, I think too it's interesting your character doesn't like fantasy, and I think that's also true for you as yeah, well. that's true. Yet in this story and all, many of your stories are tinged with an element or a limb of the fantastic yeah. that I think yeah. works really well. And I think that's very interesting that that which you do not enjoy, you do employ.
2: <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm working on a new novel, and my
0: wife said, "Don't
1: put another god or goddess in this one." <laughs>
0: I want a monster. I really want a s- flat-out monster. Well, what's... what's? <laughs> there's there's I mean, certainly in the, in this, yes.
1: In this one, yes. I mean, his sister is haunted. So it's a... I mean, it's a haunt story. I don't know if I would call it a ghost story, but it's a haunt story. Or what do they say in the South? Haint. Haint. Haint.
0: Haint. You know... Haint, Haint uh, my fault. I,
1: did, I just wrote it down.
0: I think it's interesting that uh <coughs> the way that you use um emotions in your book and in all these stories there's a I think it's uh one of the characters in, in this uh novel novella, novella says something that about emotions without sentiment mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the things that makes your work so powerful because you give us really intense and raw emotions but there are rendered in this almost scientific manner mm-hmm. that makes them uh, more affecting and i think rather frightening in general mm-hmm. i think the the emotions that your characters experience seem so raw and real to us as readers you're kind of like a little bit you go oh, yay, yay yay i wish i
1: could be more of a sentimental writer i'd sell more books but you know you you are what you are um I mean let's face it sentimental writers sell more than non-sentimental writers but I'd I li- I I'd, I think that non-sentimental writers last longer than or the work lasts longer than the sentimental writers um
0: I think you're all I mean just think about
1: the Oedipus play right he murders his father and fucks his mother and has children by her which enraged, so enrages the gods that they nearly destroy an entire kingdom. It's not sentimental.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that uh, these stories seem to have kind of a, a laser-like, um, you know, 3D focus of the way we live, our interior, and, uh, interior lives and our external lives, how those uh, meet and affect and influence afflict one another, Mm. mostly with pain. Interesting, Uh, and and I think that's what makes them uh, so powerful. And I do believe that this is the kind of stuff that you can read and reread, and that's very important for a piece of any piece of literature. It's certainly
1: important to me. I mean, you know, I mean, that's my elemental judgment about something that's good to not, you know, maybe even great. You know, that you can read it more than once. I mean, think of all the novels you've read once that you never want to go
0: back to. You don't need to go back to them. But And then think about the
1: ones that you do go back to.
0: Um, well, mean, you go back to them without um, asking to. You remember them like memories. I mm-hmm. mean, a good uh, uh, plan B for the title of this is Vacations in Hell. <laughs> because <laughs> the reading this it's is a li- selling
1: title. Thank you, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I'm here to tell people buy the book. Uh, it's a wonderful book. Thank you. A- and it, there's a, a couple others here. There's uh, his book of travel essays, and also uh, "Song of Slaves in the Desert," his uh, previous novel, which is uh, a really intense and beautiful look at uh, the historical South in a manner that you have never read before. I guarantee. It's it.
1: about a Jewish slaveholding family in Charleston, mid nineteenth mm-hmm. century. "Song
0: of Slaves in the South," in the desert. Uh, somewhere it's just out yeah. in paperback. Yeah.
1: And what was the
2: name of that Jewish author that you talked about?
1: Victor Pereira, Victor Pereira writes. I think you have to order that from Amazon or some place where you get a used used Hmm. Or you don't say that to him. We have unplugged books. Unplugged. Is that yeah, new? T- I don't know about it. Yeah.
0: Talk about uh, you know this is an unplugged book, Paradise or Eat Your Face.
1: It's an e-book. Yes, actually, the they're only the publisher Andrew Gifford, who did the about five six years ago, did a little pair of novellas of mine called The Fires. Said, hey, let's do an e-book. You know, hey, let's do a musical. Your dad's got a barn. We can right? <laughs> because he, he wanted to sort of dip his foot in the electronic waters. So um, so we put this. We put this together in about four months uh virtually no publicity uh so word of mouth it'd be very good go to a, uh you know unplug do they have a website yeah so uh anyway, <coughs> tell your friends to give it for christmas t- to somebody who has an unsentimental view of life, Or and better yet to someone who has a sentimental view of life Uh <laughs> yeah so so so, <laughs> so we put this together. Um, and it's mainly an electronic book. We, he's p- printed only about uh, 1,000 copies of the, the physical book.
0: So these um, are signed, limited editions here, and yeah. they're well worth uh, grabbing hold of. Uh, buy two, one to read, one to store up in your library, and then when you kick the bucket, your kids have a book they can sell for 1,000 bucks, eh?
1: <laughs> but before you go, <laughs> send me a letter or an email with all of your secrets. <laughs> <laughs> I want to stay around and write about them.
0: <laughs> He's just listening to your thoughts right now. <laughs> All of you are going to show up in a story one way or another.
1: <laughs> well, I, I, I hope you, you know, enjoy this little smorgasbord. But do you, do you have questions you'd like to bring up? No, yet. Yeah. Oh. Mm. Uh, I'll read one little more aphasic sequence. Um. Subliminal, subluminous, subtransforacentent. Immediamente bloomed the spillage crescent benata las uvas, las pajaros pharaohs singing golden music to the waiting whales of moonstruck pyramids Gas hawk, flee, jalaba my mahogany forest may yet fall Pereira was writing a book about a whale never he followed whales and never got to the nada, the narrow, the nothing, the window, the basket, the ocean, the worry, the child, the always, the be there, the charges, the cloak, the bargain, the bull, the chariot, the charion, the zeno, the bugbear, the pussy, the marching, the pin, the pin, the pin, the hola, mi madre, the worry about naughty, the zero, the trees, the zorro, the bird nest, the calling, the nipple, the pipeline, the heartbeat, the heartbeat, the heartbeat. Uh, God, I used to take Victor to lunch, and and I would say, "How are you today?" And he would say things like that. It's amazing. I mean, in a way, he was. I mean, it was completely fractured in the brain, but it, it. He was just say these
0: lyrical things. I mean, not exactly that, but like that. You write well of the central coast in all three of these. And and it, it, yes, it happened. Right. It just. And yeah, and was that was that by plan? No, it's just. Well,
1: maybe Andrew Gifford, the publisher, f-
0: had that in the back of his mind. That it
1: formed a little trio. The same
2: thing about, uh, a trance
1: after, a a after breakfast um, is a uh, some. The heart of the the heart of that travel book are these uh, pieces that I wrote for Gourmet. Uh, a piece about Bali. A piece about New Zealand. Um, and some other places. Um, oh, Gourmet. I mourn Gourmet the way but more than some of my relatives. Uh, because the best
0: cookbook I ever got, I still use it religiously. I mean, they
1: those are the best. Those days are gone, but, I mean, you'd send a note to the editor and say, Bali, and she would write back and say, well, we haven't done Bali in 15 years, of course. And you could, you know, so you'd go for three weeks, and and then she'd send you a note saying uh, but you must go to and stay at both of the four seasons
0: <laughs> <laughs> must those, be rough <laughs> those I were gold those
1: were golden <laughs> days <laughs> <laughs> have any of you been to the four seasons in ubud in bali the most amazing uh, architecture it is it, done by uh, at the time a very young uh, architect from hong kong it it's built into the side of a hill that slants down to these through these rice fields to this sacred river that runs about it's about a quarter of a mile down from the hotel. And it's as if he's embedded these impaled these slabs into the side of this hill. And and you as you enter this hotel, you come onto the you're on the top floor and There is a lotus pond about the size of an Olympic swimming pool With little walkways out into it so you can sit and meditate if you'd like and then below that is the lobby with a a 180-degree floor-to-ceiling glass wall uh, Behind the desk so you can look down to the rice fields and beyond to the river and then a couple of more floors of restaurants and health club and inside rooms where you hope you can afford to not stay in because the, they have these little villas s- spotted around the landscape uh, individual c- cottages where you can stay uh, two levels with your own uh, swimming pool just the most amazing place and we had to stay in both of those those are golden days. Um, so anyway, so there's a the Bali essay. It actually, that's the title of the book. Which is the Bali essay a trance after breakfast? And New Zealand essay. Um, it, it was after uh, uh, Lord of the Rings came out. So ostensibly, I was supposed to go to look at the movie scenes in New Zealand. Uh, the the. the some extraordinary place have you, some of you have been to New Zealand I'm shocked because you're relatively close hop, skip, and a jump <laughs> from San Francisco it's really only 13 hours uh, whereas Bali is almost 24 hours with several stops in between um, anyway, that's the travel book with also a couple of little essays about my h- hometown of Poithamboy, New Jersey and um, Working some, the Border and, and yeah, do you know any of you know the San Diego Reader, which is the kind of like the village voice or, or the the city paper of uh, San Diego? I don't think it really exists in the form that I know it anymore because of the internet. But it, it, this genius uh, entrepreneur ran it, and he every issue ran a, hundreds of pages because he had all the advertising because it was, it was a giveaway, and every advertiser paid it. Through the nose to get in it because the writing was good and people wanted to read the articles. Uh, there were he had a lead writer who had an expose in every issue. I don't know if you're familiar with San Diego city and county government, but there's a, a lot of it's a lot like D.C. where I live, and so there wasn't an issue that came out that didn't have a piece about somebody taking a bribe or some councilman. Uh, shooting a Mexican tourist. I mean, just great stuff. But anyway, this, the thing about the, the San Diego Reader was they, they'd they fly you there, they'd give you a place to stay. The The, the publisher owned a little condominium uh, group of condos on Coronado Island. So they'd give you a condo, you stay as long as you like, and write what, at whatever length you like about any subject that had anything to do with San Diego County. So, so I... Uh, wrote uh, uh, four, mostly quite long pieces about border. I mean, I spent a week of nights shadowing the the, the border patrol, and uh, I actually spent a night um, in one of the booths at the at the um, port of entry, and uh, you know chasing uh, Mexican criminals through uh, San, San Diego with an agent who gotten tipped off that these guys are out to commit crime. And it was really interesting. So I put getting to know uh, uh, Sonia my daughter, one of my daughters is named Sonia, but Sonia was the, the heroin sniffing dog. I spent the night with Sonia um, and um, I mean just an amazing series of adventures because to see people children under the tire hoods uh, being smuggled in. I mean just Stuff like that. Anyway, so there's a long piece about the border port of entry, uh, San Isidro port of entry, and a piece about a bilingual uh, religious school in uh, in in uh, Tijuana, and another piece about a Tijuana minister who was almost a rabbi. He was a Methodist minister from Central Mexico who. Uh, after he came to the U.S. and served in the, the army in the Korean War, stayed in the U.S. and went to Bible school, became a Methodist minister, and decided the Methodists weren't giving him enough Bible study. So he went to the uh, University of Judaism, I think it's grown in, in L.A., where he got he qualified. He did all of the work to become a rabbi except the ordination. And they were they said, You want to be a rabbi, Lord? And they, you know? He said, "Well, no, I'm still a Methodist, but this is, I, he said, "I wish I could be a rabbi. He's too old to be circumcised as he joked as he <laughs> joked with me he was, a, anyway, um although if you read that, read that story out of um uh, Kenya, where they're going to circumcise a million men oh. to keep you know because the AIDS virus oh, God. now we're getting." All right, uh, f- physiological. <laughs> you know, uh, it's the, called body horror. Yeah, the AIDS virus tends to hide in the uh, in the foreskin. You know, in any case, a million Kenyans will be circumcised this year. I mean, my, uh, on my father's side, my great 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 grandfather was a. Uh, a soldier in Napoleon's army. He he was a a sergeant and a a good Catholic fellow, French Catholic. And he was wounded in the retreat from Moscow and stayed behind and was nursed by this Jewish family who took him in in the middle of that horrible winter. And he fell in love with uh, the, the daughter of the family and converted at the age of 26. So I I feel the pain of the <laughs> familial pain of those Kenyan men. In any case, how did we get to that subject? Oh, the, the, uh, the Alan, rabbi. You're a great the, the rabbi. <laughs> yes. So this. So he returned after being almost become a rabbi and still a Methodist priest. He returned, Methodist minister. He returned to Mexico, and in, set up a temple a conservative Jewish temple in Tijuana, in one of the worst neighborhoods, and built a dining hall, soup kitchen, but a very fancy one, I I assure you, with stained glass windows and beautiful marble uh, tables, and fed the hungry in that neighborhood. And after getting permission from the bishop of Tijuana, he began to convert some uh, Mexicans to to Judaism uh, as a lay rabbi uh, after getting permission from the bishop of Tijuana because if he didn't he would have been in deep trouble and so but he ran this soup kitchen soup kitchen and he had uh, uh, ceremonies prayer daily prayer uh, that he presided over and so I wrote about it. I, actually I met him because the the piece started out as um, when, when, the ed- when I first met the editor the, the reader he said well what do you want to write about and I said uh, um, um, uh, Mexican Jews I didn't know what I was saying but it, <laughs> it turned out to be quite a deep subject because um, as I discovered uh, after some research and reading the annals of the Mexican Inquisition I discovered this man named Hernando, Hernando Alonso who came over by ship, one of the early Spanish ships, ships to Mexico, just after uh, Cortez. And I actually wrote a long story about him called Hernando Alonso, that's in one of my earlier story collections. And I wrote about him in, in this piece. It, it's, um, there's a guy named Art Seidenbaum who was the book editor of the LA Times. And I, I started writing for the Times, um, oh, oh, in 1980 or so, um, and he, he was a wonderful guy. Long dead now, but he, he said, he, he, "I asked him for advice. What do I do? I want to be a writer." He said, "Well," he said, "you got to sell every piece four times if you want to make a living as a writer. So you do, um, you know, a, a, an essay about Hernando Alonso, and then you turn it into a short story." Anyway, so Hernando Alonso is in this piece, but it's also about the the various waves of uh, Jewish immigration to Mexico, uh, of which there were several, and uh, and then I heard about this priest, and and he really becomes the centerpiece. He became the
0: centerpiece of this long uh, essay that's in this travel book. And that gives you a sense of Mr. Choose's sense of story, and I think the way he tells stories, you just heard him tell a story, and this gives you an idea of kind of what you're going to get when you pick up any of his books.
1: There's a great moment, I I just want to throw in, because it's a great moment. when He told me about when he met uh, the head of the main drug family from Tijuana, who came to his door, driven by one of his gangster drivers and said may I come in and he said yes Then he sat him down and he said I hear you are a great teacher yes the rabbi says he said I would like you to teach the bible to my children and he said I don't mean to dishonor you or your children senor but I do not think that I can work for you And the drug lord said, "Other people have said that to me, and have <laughs> but in your case, I will pay you the same respect that you pay me, and I will thank you and go my way
0: <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Alan choose." <laughs>
1: Well, I only answered one question. If you have other questions, you could ask them, but I'd be happy to... We have a, a yes. question at yes, that. Yes, ma'am. Um, as they say in the press, and press conference, I have a two-part question. Okay. Uh,
0: the first is, do you consider Lord of the Flies a sentimental or unsentimental? Unsentimental. Yes. Lord of the Flies, unsentimental. Check. Yeah. I have a feeling. Yeah.
1: Yeah, was wow. a brilliant, brilliant. Book. He's 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 a very underrated writer, Golden. And I, I don't think um, many people, and I, I among them, have read their way all the way through his his rather large production. But Is it large? Yeah, 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 They're about a dozen books. Oh, really? I haven't read them all, but I think he's a brilliant, brilliant writer. That's one of that's one of the great books of my college days. Yeah.
3: Thought of him as an excellent critic. And do we know
1: anything of him except one line? And do we know anything of any critic uh, after that until? 2017? Oh, we know a lot about critics after Aristotle. We we know that he, you know, he he was at the Academy, which you know, uh, Plato founded, and he taught, and the the Poetics are. are his, he never wrote them, he dictated, he talked as he walked through the gardens of the academy and his students took notes and that's, those are the poetics, the notes that his students took. Uh, but it's a better bet that they're close to what he actually said than say any of the gospels because they took the notes as he said them rather than try to write down stuff about events that supposedly happened you know, 60 to 100 or 300 years later. Um uh, as as well, we know well, Samuel Johnson, we know a lot about Samuel Johnson, no, no, eighteenth yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, so Boswell got us a lot of Johnson um including that one. This is an x rated anecdote from Boswell, <laughs> that w- extraordinary moment when he's riding in a carriage sitting opposite two women, two fancy women of London.
0: Comely lasses.
1: No, these were mature women. And one of them says to uh, Dr. Johnson, she says, "Um, Sir, he says, yes, madam, sir, he doesn't know these people, they're just taking a carriage to a point that they both want to reach. Sir, she says, are you aware that you are sticking out of your trousers? (laughs) And he looks down and he stuffs himself back in his trousers and buttons himself up, and he says, "Thank you very much, madam, but don't flatter yourself. I was merely hanging out." <laughs> <laughs> Next, is, is that that was the second part of your question? Yeah. I mean, we know we know a lot about. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's some great, you know, the great 20th century critics. We know a lot about. Um, uh, Edmund Wilson, we know more than we want to know. We know that Mary, when he was married to Mary McCarthy, she, this would get him fired as sheriff of San Francisco. She said, would you take out the garbage? And he slapped her. And that ended that marriage. Um, and we know about Alfred Kazin, his, uh, his uh, three-part autobiography. Wonderful. Uh, A Walker in the City is one of the great uh, autobiographies, or memoirs, I think. So we know, I mean, the closer we get to our own time, we know more and more about these people, which is, I guess, the opposite of certain sciences. Where I mean, We know more about Neanderthal now than any people ever knew about Neanderthal. I'm much more interested in Neanderthal myself. (laughs) Any other questions? Um, Yes. How long did you say
3: your friend was in a coma, the Sephardic Jew, I didn't get it. Three
1: weeks. Three weeks. Yes. And he wasn't expected to come out. And then he came out. And there was this line of women volunteering to take care of him. I mean, one of his first students um, took him in at the very end. Um, he was living at that. What's that? What's that large? Um, La Posada. Ca- La Posada. Hmm. La Posada. La Posada. I think that's. Yeah. It's that sort of three huge buildings on off uh, off Soquel? Yeah. He was living there, and then she took him in. Lived in a condo his last days on Roosevelt Terrace. Um, but he. Nobody expected him to get that. F- far. It's just sad. All my dearest, earliest uh, Santa Cruz friends, all gone: Jim Houston, Mort Marcus, Victor Pereira. Did
3: you uh, Did you read Diane Ackerman's A Hundred Names for Love, or any of Paul West's
2: novels? Mem, mem, mem. After his
1: stroke? Yeah, no, you know, I couldn't, I mean, I hate to, okay. I don't mean to sound nasty. I couldn't read Paul West before his stroke, and I couldn't. I can't read him after. <laughs> it's just a, matter of, just a matter of taste, I think. Yeah.
0: But her book
3: uh, about this man who had so many words that many of us couldn't understand, uh, but her book is, is very well-researched, and having had a mother with a stroke who lived with us, mm-hmm. uh, encouraging in some ways that you're not often told when somebody has a stroke. Mm-hmm. That things do come back even well beyond the hmm
2: mm-hmm.
3: But, but uh, sh- she became very inventive in trying to bring language back to him.
1: Yes, there's a a, a New York actor, what is his name? I can't remember his name, he did, who suffered a stroke and, and had aphasia and did a, wrote a play about it and he played the main character. Uh, so, and, and, and it, I mean what I'm trying to do with the language here, I mean, it, it can be uh, completely opaque or it can be somehow lyrical and, and like poetry in a certain way. I mean I guess you could say all lyric poetry is a form of aphasia. Uh, it comes unbidden most of the time. Um, and, and it comes from where we know not.
0: There's a graduate yeah. dissertation right there.
1: Thank God I'm beyond that stage. <laughs> All the theses I've, I'll never write. Was, that, was that, There's a story of Cheevers called Some Things That Will Not Appear in My Next Novel. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be interesting.
0: But I, I'm not going to write it.
1: Any other questions, or can we break out the champagne?
0: I think it's time to break out the signing pen, and uh, please buy these books. Thanks Thanks. for joining us. Thank you for coming.